leading humans towards the future of work that works for people. A smorgasbord of snackable stories to help you be a more effective leader. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. I know that people listen to this podcast from literally all over the world. So, hiya! Thank you so much for dedicating the next half hour of your one precious life to this episode. And I do not think that you will regret it. So, um, today's guest is Mark Evans, who is the managing director of marketing and digital at Direct Line, which for those of you who don't come from the UK is an insurance company. It's pretty big. And I know that his stories are going to be as warm and inspiring as he is. But before I introduce you to Mark, I I just wanna say a massive, massive thank you to all of you that have sent feedback and suggestions for what you'd like to see more of, what you love, what you really don't love, how I can improve the show. Your feedback is really, really, really important to me. It energizes me. And because of this podcast, I get to meet the most extraordinary people like you. So, and I love it. So please do just keep reaching out. I love hearing from you. I love meeting you. I love hearing about what you love and what you don't love. So please head over to Cats Keeley, or as they say in Ireland, Kylie, catskeely.com to sign up to the Humans Leading Humans newsletter. Head over to www.wearebeep, the behavioral enterprise engagement platform. Com to find out more about our experiential behavior change programs. And because I love you, if you want to message me directly, then feel free to do so. My email is cats at wearebeep.com. Okay, enough of that. I'd love to introduce you to Mr. Mark Evans. Mark Evans. I am so delighted to have you on Humans Leading Humans. Now, dear listeners, I would normally explain how I have met my guests, but as you know, we do this podcast in partnership with the Marketing Society. Sophie, the darling Sophie, who is the CEO of the Marketing Society, kept talking about this guy. And every time she mentioned him, she said, oh my God, you're going to love Mark. He's definitely a marginal leader. And I met Mark and do you know what? She was spot on right. So Mark, enough of me. Do you want to tell our listeners, how did you get to where you are? Well, hi, Cass. Uh, great to be on here. And I, I've always said, long before what you said there, that uh, Sophie is an extremely good judge of character. Uh, no, I, I jest. I mean, I, <laughs> it's fantastic to work with Sophie and what she's done at the Marketing Society in relatively short time is remarkable. And um, it's a real privilege to work with her and be part of the Marketing Society board. How did I get here? More or less a happy accident, which needs a bit of unpacking. So 
I was destined for a career in finance as a graduate. So I was fortunate enough to go to university, had a graduate job through the milk round, working in investment banking in London. And then I deferred that for a year to do a sports president role at university, like an elected sabbatical role. Sports is my real love. Uh, And during that year, my graduate job disappeared in a puff of smoke and I was made redundant literally before I'd even set foot in the building because it was a milk round process. And at the time, it was a bit of a kick, but I probably was saved from a rather ordinary career in finance. And so I went back around the milk round and joined Mars, not not least because the graduate program... Mark, can I just stop you there? There may be other people who are listening that who don't really know what that is, the milk round situation. So yeah, so, um, yeah, I mean, basically, employers come to universities and they're pretty targeted and the universities, they think they're going to get the right people. And so they go all in and provide a bespoke process for a university to look to hire a certain number of people. Uh, and so Mar- the Marses, Procter & Gamble's, the banks, the accountants will tend to, well, I mean, it may be slightly different now because I'm, I'm a bit old and it might have all changed, but for a period of time anyway, it was an efficient way to go towards uh, university recruitment. I mean, I, I would say that literally we are in the process of more or less unpicking our graduate program and leaning much more towards apprenticeships. So I think no, no doubt it might be quite different now, but back then it was sort of the efficient way to get a graduate job. Um, but anyway, maybe I needn't have bothered because it all disappeared in a puff of smoke, but I did go back around again and I, I joined Mars. And then I've, I, the shorthand would be, I've worked in lots of sectors and companies and regions in marketing. I've always loved marketing. It's all been brilliant. The real story is I've been made redundant four times uh, I seem to always get caught up in these nasty little restructuring things. Um, but I've always landed jam side up uh, in terms of finding something where I could, having reminded myself what it is I'm good at and not good at, I could go and find something which is bigger and better than before. Uh, and and uh, I do talk about trying to break the taboo and stigma of redundancy because it, it isn't personal. Well, it kind of is because it feels very personal, but you know, it's it shouldn't be a reflection on your capability and talent um, but obviously it takes a bit of resilience to navigate through those moments. Um, and yeah, now I found myself 10 years at direct line. I mean, I did not grow up as a boy dreaming of working in insurance. Uh, and who'd have thought that it turns out it's a really interesting space and it is significant in people's lives uh, and still has a lot to do to reconnect with customers. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's the short, the short story is it's all been a great ride in marketing. The longer story is there's been a ton of uh, lumps and bumps along the way. I'm going to ask you a question. Now that you said it wasn't what I wanted to do when I was a boy growing up, what was, what 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 did you want to do when you were a boy growing up? I actually wanted to be a forensic scientist. Well, <laughs> maybe a rugby, maybe a rugby player, but a forensic scientist. I was I was always quite sciencey, but for the very specific reason, and just indulge me for one minute, is uh, when I was at school, uh, there was a guy who kid well, nine years old who sat next to me uh, in class because it's all alphabetical, and he started being escorted to school by the police. And at the age of nine, you can imagine that's quite eye-catching. And what had happened was that somebody had tried to assassinate his father. Oh my God. Um, who was a farmer with a nail bomb. Uh, and he had not been in the car. Instead, it had been his wife who had been um, affected by this nail bomb. She'd survived, but with, with devastating injuries. Uh, and so they thought that the family was under threat of attack because they'd been death threats and so on. Anyway, As it transpired, what turns out to be relatively rudimentary forensics, but leading edge back then, pinned it down to the fact that actually he tried to kill his wife for the insurance. Oh, 
my God. Yeah. And so that this was then made into a, it was one episode of a TV series called Indelible Evidence. As I said, I think, you know, this is pre-DNA. Um, but this was utterly amazing that the person I sat next to at school, his family was in this crazy That's story insane. about an attempted murder. Uh, and so, yeah, for a period of time, I harbored this, this dream of working in forensic science. But um, anyway, the moment passed and probably for the best, frankly. But yeah, I mean, who'd have thought? And there's, there's a narrative line there because you got into the insurance that he was trying to get a hold of, right? Well, there's a circularity, I guess. Yeah, you could say that. Mm. <laughs> so I sent you the Create Framework. Um, how did that make you feel? It, it conjured quite a few thoughts. I mean, there's, there's across Create, there's quite a shopping list. So the first thing I did was sort of, you know, what, what are the things that really leapt out to me in terms of important dynamics within culture? And so, you know, I've circled here consistency, respect, empathy, appreciation, trust, empowerment. I remembered back to what I think made a great culture in sport. Then I, then I thought, well, there's a different way of looking at this. And actually, if culture can be defined as the worst behavior that's tolerated, it made me sort of go to another extreme in terms of, you know, cu cu culture is about, yeah, what people are allowed to get away with, because that defines the, the, the level for everybody. Um, so it actually sent lots of things swirling. And I was actually reminded in the end that uh, the role of leader is really to provide clarity and energy. Uh, and it's that that sort of is the the forerunner for anything that an organization might achieve. So I mean, I have to say that it, it sort of stirred loads of thoughts. There's, I think there's something for everybody in the framework because it's quite all encompassing. I really think an important point is appreciation. So if I was going to pull one thing out is appreciation or, or, or literally thanks. Uh, I think that might move appreciation to the T column. Um, but I just think um, something that really isn't really important to culture is that leaders are appreciative and not impolite or polite or, or conscientious. So I spend a lot of time thanking a lot of people, even if it's just a quick one-liner, um, because I think with, if, if not, then immediately you put yourself on a pedestal and you put other people subservient to yourself. And I always remember it was Timpsons who drew the organization upside down. And I've seen a few more versions of that, but I think it definitely originated in Timpsons. And this notion of servant leader and, and of course, that is synonymous with Agile, which is a big thing that, that we've been through as an organization recently. So I think somewhere in energies need, then leaders need to provide clarity and energy and be grateful and appreciative and thankful is what it brought me to. So I don't know if that's what you're looking for as an answer, but it was a great uh, source of stimulus and definitely a reminder that culture can be defined by what's the worst behavior that's tolerated. In New Zealand rugby, they say the ground rule is no dickheads. Um, and it sort of, in a way, captures the fact that the toxicity levels in the culture is defined by the most toxic person or dynamic. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's a brilliant answer, and that's given me loads of things to work with. And, and funnily enough, John Timpson, Sir John Timpson, who I tried to call Lord John Timpson, and he was like, no, that's not me at all, um, was one of my podcast guests at the beginning. And actually, he made me quite tearful. Because even though I know the story, hearing it from him. So, dear listeners, if you haven't listened to that episode, go and have a listen. Because Sir John Timpson is an absolute fire starter. Yeah. An amazing human being. Okay, so what's your story number one? Story number one, I'm going to talk to gender as part of DNI. Just because I, I there's sort of for me, there's an arc. I was actually just at our Diversity Network Alliance committee offsite. So diversity uh, strategy planning 
morning this morning. So it's quite fresh in the mind. Um, and at, at which point I said that, you know, one of my entry points into caring about diversity was when I had a daughter. And, and I said, you know, I, I wouldn't really say that now because the obvious question is, well, what, what kind of a shit were you before you had a daughter that you didn't give her monkeys? But that, 20 years ago, that was a thing, you know, for, yeah. for many maybe many fathers that, you know, I want, I want my, of course I want my daughter to have equal opportunity. Um, but and then, of course, the, the, the story and the narrative of DNI has grown massively. Um, but I actually want to tell a slightly different perspective on that. Before I do, I, and I would say I think direct line, particularly as regards gender, is very progressive. We have a female chair, a female CEO, uh, a majority female ex-co, a um, 50-50 board and I think 43% of our senior leaders are female. That um, is absolutely awesome, Mark. Awesome. Yeah, to and and Penny, Penny's super proud to have just been asked to co-chair um, the FTSE Women Leaders uh, Committee, uh, which is to advocate even more forcefully for uh, female representation. So that's some of the context. But the story I wanted to tell was, I mean, all, all too often the, the story about diversity is, you know, how do, how do you get there? Uh, and I didn't want to tell that story because lots of people have told that. I wanted to tell more of the story about what's the benefit when you are there. The context for that being when I joined the organization in 2012, uh, it, was, it, it was just about to go through an IPO. It was a, a bit out of shape. We had to do lots of restructuring. And it, it went from a leadership team, which was fairly gender balanced, uh, of about 11 or 12, to a, a team of about five or six. And and just because of best people, best 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 for the job, I ended up with an exclusively female leadership team for a number of years. So, so that there isn't really much of a story about how it came to pass. It was as basically as a part of a cost cutting and restructuring exercise. Um, but the, the best talent happened to be female, not because it had been very deliberately built over time, it just was. And so this then coincided, or in fact didn't coincide with the fact that we had some riotous success for a number of years. And it's the story behind the story of how Direct Line as a brand turned around and won three IPA golds and, you know, was really at the forefront of a business transformation process, reinstilling belief and ownership and all the cultural things that we've just talked about. And it was because of, I think, um, having a very progressively minded all-female leadership team. And... It was my only experience of having had that, of being basically the, the only male in the room. Ne never felt intimidated by that. I do know that if uh, there's a sole female in a team, I, I believe they're three times more likely to resign than if it was if, if, if they're not the only female. Never yeah. it, that, that's not the story I'm trying to tell. The story I'm trying to tell is, you know, that di diversity does lead to performance. And I think particularly gender balance is a good forerunner to all other aspects of diversity. I think you have a better conversation once you fix the gender paradigm. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I would say that the couple of the best or three, four years of my career in terms of doing some really cool stuff was underpinned by having an exclusively, exclusively female leadership team. So there's, you know. So lovely to hear. And, and it's funny when, um, I don't know whether you've listened to Dan's episode of humans leading humans, but um, he talks about the research that he's done. It isn't about the amount of women that are in leadership positions. It's whether all of those people, male and female, whatever, you know, whatever part of the spectrum of diversity, if everyone feels equal. Yeah. 
then you end up with a culture where people are fired up and feel like they can do their best. But what a great story. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point you make there in the, the D part of DNI is just the facts, you know, who's around the table. Not that that's unimportant, but the I bit is people generally feel like they, they belong um, and having belief that their voice matters. And they're two very different things. And that was a little bit lost on me until probably a couple of years ago that, um, you know, diversity per se is necessary, but not sufficient, far from it. Exactly. Uh, and so we're going back to, we're talking again about culture and inclusivity. Um, but I think, uh, you know, there's the stats are there in terms of diverse recruitment that doesn't follow through to tenure and retention because the I bit is not there. Exactly. Love that. Okay, what's your story number two? Story number two is the night of my graduation because it was my in to purpose. Uh, so I graduated from Nottingham a long time ago. Won't give you a long time ago. Uh, and went out for a celebratory meal. Five Nothing. years ago, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it was, okay, it was, it was 1995, I think. My goodness, long time ago. Um, went out for a celebratory meal in Nottingham City Centre uh, five of us, uh, friends and family and loved ones. And perhaps the, the curious thing is that why, why would that ever be the memorable thing? Surely it would be the graduation ceremony, which is the, the real deal. But for one very specific reason, it was a very memorable and impactful meal. And that was because my best friend, Matt, his father, Pete, uh, took it upon himself to say a few words. He asked, actually, you know, could would it be okay? And, and this was a bit of a down and dirty joint. So it's not the place where you sort of chink champagne glasses. But anyway, we shouldn't have worried because it turns out he's a really, really good speaker. And this is what he said. He said, as I look before you, I'm jealous. And the reason I'm jealous is because from this position where you find yourself now, you can achieve almost anything in the world. But at the same time, I pity you. And the reason I pity you is because for 20 years or so, you'll go in search of success. And then after 20 years, when maybe, sadly, your best years are behind you, you'll realise it's not about success, it's about significance. But the really smart people figure out how to achieve success and significance simultaneously. So I'm not going to lie, we had a couple of beers, you know, it was, it was a fun evening, but it was, a, it was a profound moment, a haunting moment, in a good way. Uh, I think we all recall that story with absolute clarity. And I think for all of us there, it was... Uh, had a deep impact in terms of what we went forth and looked for in life. I, I, I always reflect that maybe for the first 10 years of my career, maybe I didn't listen quite as loudly as I could have done it to that. But, but then again, maybe I'm being too hard on myself. And, but over time, it's become louder and louder in my thinking uh, in terms of that and uh, what's the, the possibility to succeed, but in a way that the right way and to the right end. Uh, and so there's, you know, there's a few things that I've done, which I think are the epitome of that. And it's all thanks to that moment. Um, I'll, I'll just, give, just give one example. One of my side projects is uh, I created the Sprinterthon, which is a, a charity event I founded. It's democratizing the marathon. So 422 people each run 100 meters. And, uh, and so I've been part of running five of the fastest 10 marathons in the world ever. Uh, great fun event. Uh, the success part, is we're breaking world records, but it's not for that. The significance part is that this is raising money to beat cancer faster. So 100% goes towards stand up to cancer 
and the great research work they do as part of Cancer Research UK. And so there's, I just find if you look hard enough, there's this beautiful intersection between success and significance. And that's really where the sweet spot is, where the abundant energy is. And I just think it's a brilliant mantra. And it was a gift that I was given when I was 22. And so I tell the story quite a lot because I think it was a gift. It's not my words, but I've benefited from them. So it's a gift that I try to pass on. So it was this was always going to be one of the stories that I told. I absolutely love that. Isn't it funny how one person, probably without realising it, can impact your entire life? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing you say about without realising it because there's a slightly painful but also beautiful circularity uh, that, uh, that touches on what you just said, which is at the very first Sprintathon. So this, this first one where it was all going a bit crazy was quite successful. It's now gone on to raise nearly three quarters of a million pounds. But in this very first one, Matt, with his family, was one of the teams that was running one of the laps of the, of the track. Uh, and my wife, Lorna, who had been there back in the day uh, at that meal, wandered over to Pete, now much, much older, uh, and said, you know, Pete, you must be really proud. And he looked at Lorna just a bit blankly. And she said, you know, all this. And he said, I've got no idea what you're talking about. And he said, well, this is Mark's success and significance. This is because of that meal in, you know, 20 odd years before. And, and he'd had no idea at all. And, I, you know, lots of tears. I'm you know, feeling quite emotional about it right now. Um, he had no idea. And for him, it was just a few words. But it does show that people who, you know, with experience and wisdom and authority, those words really permeate deeply. Uh, and, you know, with that comes great responsibility. But in this case, you know, what a lovely moment where it all came to fruition. And also, going back to your point about appreciation, how many times do we have, we have those mentors that have affected who we are as humans? How many times do we go back to those individuals and explain to them, appreciate them for giving us those jaws? I love that story, Mark. Thank you. Next, what's your story number three? My third story, I'm going to talk a bit, of, it's a bit shop, but I'm going to talk about my experience of going through an agile transformation at Direct Line, because I think it's... You know, I've learned loads and a lot of companies are looking at this. Um, and the reason I tell the story is that a lot of focus is on methodology of Agile. And a couple of years in, I think our biggest learning is not that my methodology is irrelevant, but how important mindsets are. So again, a, a crucial link to culture. And it's really mindsets that make the difference. So context, we knew we needed to speed up the the rate of change and reduce the cost of change. We needed to be more innovative. We had continuous feedback saying it's just a bit too hard to get things done here. Uh, so we went the full fat agile model, uh, swallowed the agile manifesto, all the acronyms, all the methodologies, all the processes, uh, and really went for it a couple of years ago. Uh, and it's been bumpy along the way, not least with COVID, but we, we wouldn't go back. It's been no regrets. We're definitely starting to see some of the benefits. But the very specific thing I wanted to talk about was this notion of servant leadership, because I think it's it's a bit more challenging than I thought it was going to be. I, I was a rugby captain. That's where I learned most everything I know about leadership. And rugby captains, are, I think it's slightly different from the normal mold of sports captains in that they are tend not to be the glory people, tend not to make that many decisions. Often it's doing the hard graft. It's more sort of setting the context and the culture for others to succeed. So I, I would like to think I've always been down the, the route of an, being an empowering leader. But 
servant leadership in an agile context is another notch or two up. But but actually, there's a, a layer in this, which is often you end up guessing as a leader where to be, what to do. Am I engaging enough? Am I directing enough? Am I listening enough? Am I present enough? Am I too close? Am I too far away? Uh, and so for me, the first 18 months of Agile was, I just felt like I was guessing all the time about whether I was doing the right thing. Was I close enough to know when to get involved or too distant to not know when to get involved? Um, and so I've learned a huge amount about dealing with loneliness because you've got to detach yourself even more than a normal empowering leadership MO um, about how to get the right feedback at the right time. So you're not guessing, you know, almost to the ritual of, you know, how, how do I need to show up today? What do you need me for today? Cause this is not absent leadership where you can just walk away and let everything fail and it's not your fault. Um, so I just think that it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride, but it's brought out the best of me or certainly challenged me as a leader and you notice I've not talked a thing about methodology as relates to Agile. I think it's all in your engagement, um, your mindset. And actually, it's not my story, but I'll borrow it. But Keith Moore gave a really good rounded perspective on this from Santander. They were a couple of years ahead and he was a good mentor to me. That at the beginning, as the leader, before you stood up Agile, you would say, I've got 150 people and they do this. And you kind of know exactly what the team structure is. And then... You go through the agile process and coming coming out the other side, you would say, well, I, you know, I think there's a, I think there's about 150 people in the team. I'm, I'm not entirely sure what they're all doing, but we, we lend them out. You know, we, we kindly donate our people to these cross-functional squads. And then a couple of years in, you say, sack it. I've got no idea how many people are in my team. The system will work out where people need to go. It's not my resource. I'm just making sure that it all works smoothly and I unblock as we go. And, and so the reason, probably the overall reason to tell the story is I think the modern leader has got a real challenge between low ego, but knowing when to get involved in the difficult stuff. And I, I still find that every day is a bit of a balance to make sure I'm not close enough. I'm, too, I'm not too close, but I'm not distant uh, to be able to support others. I hope that makes sense as an arc. I think it, it does make sense. And I'm really interested to deep dive into that a little bit because I think COVID, even if people weren't starting down the agile journey, and I think like you, if you stick to the doctrine, you're giving yourself an unnecessary framework. And that's not where agile came from. It was about flexibility and malleability. But yeah, I'd love to know a little bit more. And I'm sure the people who are listening would need to know as well. What would have been the best points of the move to Agile and what have been the most challenging? The, the best things are giving people genuine empowerment and accountability with a slight twist that some people didn't know what they'd wish for. Careful what you wish for, if you know what I mean, as in uh, what? So I'm, you know, so I'm going to have to make that decision and I'm going to be accountable for the outcomes of it. So the outcome based thing. I think is is brilliant, but for some people it's a bit of a catch. You know, it's a bit of a watch out because they didn't know that it meant that. Uh, but we, we're a, we're a regulated company. We're pretty big. We're not massive. We're pretty big, uh, and it could be really hard to get something from A to B to get out of the door. And, uh, and so now, the, the the level of experimentation, the pace of delivery, still nowhere near perfect. I think we're halfway into the maturity curve, maybe. Uh, but that's the best thing is that, that just the pace of getting stuff done. And there's a few examples through COVID where we've stood things up in 
months that might have taken years or weeks that might have taken months. So I think just the, the pace of it all, you know, if, if, if you want work to be exciting, you should be able to just get on and do some stuff. So that's, so that's the best thing. I think that the, the most, most challenging thing, I, I won't, so certain leadership will be up there, but I think the combination of virtual working and standing up agile has put a major stress on a lot of people in a way the two have gone hand in hand because actually agile does work very well in a virtual context but the process of adjustment for everybody you know literally everybody in the head office having a new job with new processes new methodologies new line managers new everything i think we put our people through quite a bit of stress in the early days of covid um now we actually saw our employee satisfaction scores go up. Uh, and I think we do have a really strong DNA and culture, but I think that's, it is, don't underestimate that it's a big challenge and it's, it's changed squared, particularly through COVID. Uh, and so if it has contributed to some of the challenges that individuals have, have had, then, you know, that's, that's part of the, the downside of it all. But I, you know, I think we've managed well through that, but you can never manage that perfectly. And change, sort of resistance to change is hardwired into humans. And so having the change of working space and the change of ways of working, of course, that's going to, that's hard to navigate. And, you know, you've talked a lot today about mindsets, but actually you have to shift your behavior as well. You can think a certain way, moving your behavior is so, so hard for a human being you snap back mm-hmm. into behaviors. So I can imagine the pain. I've seen it. I've seen people have to leave because they can't cope with this new move to accountability or uh, because actually, you know, in the old ways of working, you pretty well hide and not do so much. And suddenly everything's open, which is fantastic for me because if you can see a problem, you'll solve a problem. But for a lot of people, that's a massive shift in behaviors. And expectations. Thank you for sharing all of those things. We're at that point where I have to ask you, what would you like to call your episode of Humans Leading Humans? So the easy answer would be something like mindsets over methodology, like accessing one of the stories or success versus significance. But I'm going to, so I haven't planned this, so I'm going to go a bit different. My, My sense is I've talked about some things which are quite tough. Uh, and so this, the, the start point would be something like, you don't have to be a masochist, but it helps. Uh, <laughs> because, because, you know, there is inevitably, there is some, a need for, for all these, you know, these, these situations, some form of resilience um, and recovery and replenishment. But, but then that sounded a bit negative when it came out of my mouth. So I think, um, Culture is fascinating. There's there's a joy of work which gets overlooked. And so it's a little bit of a tangent, but you know, a lot of our self-esteem, self-work worth comes from work when we enjoy it well. Um, so even, even if it's a bit crowbarred, what's in my head is, you know, kind of brackets despite it all, make make sure you enjoy it. You know, enjoy it. Uh, and for very achievement-oriented people, I think often forget that. Yes. And actually, again, I, I always talk about the Sprintathon, and uh, one of the things there was on that very first Sprintathon, the same one when you know we told that story before. It was about midday. I was super stressed, probably one of the most stressed I've ever been. And my 13-year-old daughter had the presence of mind to grab me by the shoulders and say, "Dad, make sure you enjoy it." And Aww. the, 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 the <laughs> truth the is, babes. 
Yeah, but the truth is, had she not yeah. said that, then I know I would not have done because I would have been so caught up in it all. So maybe that maybe it's enjoy it. You know, don't overthink it. Roll with it. Trust your instincts. That sort of space. But above all, uh, make sure you enjoy it. Make sure you enjoy it. I do you know what? I really loved watching the creative process as you went through that. I really enjoyed it. And also what springs to mind is, you know, that one person, Pete, that gave you that fantastic advice. I think, I think leaders need to be aware of the fact that actually every single day they have opportunities to energize, empower, give wisdom, appreciate their, their employees, their colleagues. And yeah, we all need to be more aware of that. It's really touched me. So thank you so much for your time and your energy and your honesty and your vulnerability. It's been absolutely brilliant, Mark. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, I loved that, Mark. Thank you. Thank you for your time. I know how busy you are, so I really appreciate that. And I really appreciated that um, conversation. I honestly, I just feel so honoured, grateful to have these kind of intimate moments with these amazing leaders. And it gives me, you know, it validates everything that we believe to be true about what good leadership looks like. So I can't thank you enough for your vulnerability and, and all of your insights, Mark. So what what's bubbled up for me? I suppose... Um, I loved listening to Mark talking about the CREATE framework. So uh, I, I went out for a glass of wine with a woman who's going to be a future podcast guest, mystery guest. And we were talking about exactly this thing. It, it, it's this incredible kind of portfolio of things. It's, it's, a, you know, it's a smorgasbord of conditions, if you like. But the whole point of that CREATE framework is to provide levers, if you like, for a full culture org audit. So, and I loved what you said, you know, the role of a leader is to provide clarity and energy. Absolutely spot on, Mark. Um, now, you know, dear listeners, that uh, I run design thinking workshops and leader voice programs with um, leaders in all sorts of big companies, private, public, and the whole point of them is to surface the blockers, the shared challenges, the blockers to productivity, and to teach them how to co-create solutions quickly. Because as you know, and it's something I say all the time, if you can see a problem, people will rally around to fix it because that's the way our brains work. In our best state, in the reward state, we want to find better ways of doing things. But two of the blockers that always come up are too many meetings and how on earth do you keep the energy of your team up and we spend a lot of time in in our programs looking about what zaps energy and what energizes and one of the things that zaps energy is of course too many meetings um, it's also really, really interesting, and I'm really glad you said it, Mark, because I'm sure it's true across the board, that when you make the shift to Agile, there is um, a loneliness and an uncertainty of letting go of command and control from that kind of hands-on, 
management to a profoundly different way of doing things, which is about empowerment and trust. It completely makes sense that if you're used to doing things one way, when you shift to this other way, it will have an impact on you. So I'm sure all of you people out there who are making that shift to Agile are probably going through the same thing. So thank you, Mark, for your vulnerability. And it, I guess from my side, I've never led in any other way. So I started my career with a startup which had an absolutely flat structure. And so we had kind of daily, I guess they'd be called stand-ups now, but they were just catch-ups where we very quickly talk about where are we going? What have we achieved? What's standing in the way? What are the blockers? And what can we all do together to unblock those blockers? And that's the way I've always worked. So, and I've obviously, because that's my common sense, that's what I do. When I go into companies, when I've worked inside companies, I've taken that way of doing things with me, which of course has caused its own challenges. But that's for another story. Uh, and it also made me think that um, serendipity being what it is, um, I found a report by, fascinating report by a French researcher called Vijay Pereira this week, actually. So it's the biggest study so far on meetings and productivity. He got 76 multinationals to stop doing meetings at various levels. And what did he find? He found, or they found, that most companies should eradicate meetings almost entirely. And um, from memory, what he found was that companies that reduced the number of meetings all experienced the same things. Less micromanagement led to reduced stress, autonomy. An uplift in autonomy led to um, better communications, better cooperation, better collaboration, better engagement. And ultimately, of course, all of that leads to productivity and efficiency. But the truth is that moving from one way of doing things to another is a change in behaviours. And that change is always going to be hard. But the truth is we're all always just learning how to be better, how to be better leaders, humans generally, I guess. Um, and I guess what really clicked with me is that last, uh, the last episode of Humans Leading Humans was, is a delightful woman called Laura. And as she said, we need to become more comfortable being uncomfortable. And I guess the last thing that really kind of touched me is the impact that every single one of us can and probably is having on a daily basis on other people and how you never really know how you're impacting people and to own that responsibility. Beautiful story and, you know, and, and that particular story, significance over success, Oh, just so many, so many yeses behind that one. And can you imagine how different the world would be if everyone took that advice to heart at the beginning of their career? So I absolutely love that. You have been listening to humans leading humans towards a future of work that works for people. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Marketing Society. If you are a senior marketing leader 
and you need the know-how and the networks to succeed and you're not already a member of that brilliant tribe, jump over to their website and become part of the tribe. I would absolutely 100% recommend it. There's some amazing people and some inspiration in there that you don't want to be missing. Thank you to the fantastic Superterrania for the magical sting of stings. Go to We Are Beep to find out more about the Create framework and how we support companies by building cultures of connection and collaboration and unleashing the problem-solving potential of humans. If you loved this episode, and I certainly did, please pass it on to your friends, share it on social, give it to your friends that you think might need a shot of inspiration or motivation or energization. Thank you so much for joining me. If there's a senior leader you'd like me to interview, don't forget, mail me, cats at wearebeep.com. Please subscribe, the links are in the note. Be inspired, be imaginal, be more human. And I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.